The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. One of the nicest things to come out of lockdown is a reconnection to knowing what goes into things, whether it's making bread, growing plants, or if you're a follower of local fashion label Ruby, online sewing classes. There's a lot that goes into clothes making. Patterns are like a 3D jigsaw puzzle done with maths. Tension and draping and fall are a kind of magic. It's a very real thing to do, and all those human touches can get forgotten in weirdly cheap chain clothing. Well, the whole fashion industry has a big old hill of trouble ahead. We thought we would get on Emily Miller-Sharma, the general manager at Ruby, and one of the driving forces behind Mindful NZ, an industry body that's bringing together local producers to advocate for better standards of traceability and to create locally appropriate codes of conduct to find out how things are going. Joining us to chat where the industry is now, the outlook and the story of Ruby is Emily Miller-Sharma. G'day, kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, I'm, I'm well, thank you. Hey, so first up, tell me, thanks so much for being here, tell me tell me about your family background, because you've got kind of like a, a, a long-standing growing up in the world of fashion kind of background, hey? I, I have, yeah. So um, like a lot of people, uh, I have grandmothers and great-grandmothers who were keen sewers and um, let me sit up next to them with my own little projects uh, from a very young age. But what is not typical is my mum and dad also had a clothing business. So mum and dad started their business in 1987, just as the wee old crash was happening. And basically they were uh, textile importers. So dad was a textile agent and um, he had stories of um, millions of metres of denim being imported into New Zealand um, and being made into garments here. And then uh, over the 90s, as the um, manufacturing in uh, New Zealand really drastically reduced and uh, people were importing a lot more, uh, particularly from China, Dad um transitioned into actually importing garments. So he became a garment wholesaler for, um, and he was wholesaling to um, New Zealand retailers like Barker's and Helen Stein's. Um, And that was happening. And in my own self-absorbed teenage way, um, I didn't really relate it to myself at all. (laughs) Um, But 
looking back now, obviously um, it had a really huge influence on um, the direction that my career was going to take. Yeah, how did you decide to get into it? Because I, I, you know, you wonder these days because the industry is so um, small and making things here and all the rest of it's reasonably challenging compared to those kind of glory days before it all got outsourced. If you grow up today, you'd probably go, "Well, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do," and that's going to be a fashion designer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so. I, I started sewing when I was in my early teens and basically I used to lie bits of fabric on, on the floor of my bedroom and then lie on top of them and then trace around myself to make the pattern and then sew it into garments and like I'm doing little air quotes when I say garments. Um, so I basically was just obsessed with color and shape and texture and I, I just I used to just spend hours and hours just noodling around making clothes. So for me, it was never a thing about hmm, what will be my career. It was just this compulsion to make things and this compulsion to make clothes, basically. Um, so absolutely, even in the glory days, uh, mum and dad worked so hard. Dad was always working at the weekends. I remember listening to his conversations with Mills, the uh, the fabric Mills, um, on a Saturday morning. He'd be in bed, <laughs> and I could hear him through the wall, you know, trying to negotiate or trying to problem solve um, uh, a flawed fabric. Um, so it was hard work then, um, and also really. I kind of, it wasn't a choice. It was just something that I just did. I just couldn't not do. And how did you go about turning that into what you did? So, um, so I went to university. I went to Massey in Wellington and then um, did a year in a workroom when I uh, finished university and then spent a year cruising around overseas. I drove a band around for a few months, made their, um, made their costumes on stage and then came back, um, came back to New Zealand thinking that I was going to, um, I was going to move to New York. And at that time, um, mum and dad were, uh, they were making, clothes for Ruby. So they're manufacturing for Ruby in the same way that they were manufacturing for companies like Barker's. And um, Kate actually, one of, so Kate and Lizzie started Ruby and uh, Kate was actually our next door neighbor. That's how that connection happened. And they got to a place in their life where um, it was time to try new things. And uh, f for dad, dad had always been so good at knowing when next to do something. So um, wholesaling was dying out in New Zealand and he knew that he needed to be in control of retail. He needed to be connected to the end customer. Um, so the natural, it was kind of a natural thing that they, um, they took, uh, they took Ruby on. And uh, so that's when I, that's when I started working for mum and dad full time. I'd worked for them heaps, you know, you just do, you work for your parents in the school holidays if you can, if if that's if that's what's going on in your fact in your family, um, so yeah, I had worked for them a lot, but that was when I started working for them full time, and that's when Diana came on board. Diana Didovich, our creative director, um, and that was twelve and a half years ago now. Yeah, wow. And 
And what Ruby was when you came in is not what it is today, is it? it it's, um, it's changed quite a lot in terms of um, the retail footprint and the kind of customer that you are serving and I guess the occasion. Like if I think about the Ruby that was first started, you know, back when everything was in black and white, uh, you know, <laughs> when we were young, um, you know, it was kind of um, way more kind of skatey kind of um, urban kind of cool girl kind of thing. And now it's um, this real glamour and, you know, lots of beautiful kind of occasiony things. Totally. So when when we when we first started, we had four stores. Um, we now have eight stores and an online store. the 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 key The key thing that stayed the same um, from uh, Ruby of the past and Ruby to now is that there's a sense of joy um, and friendship and fun. Um, but absolutely, it um, like my first Ruby thing was a pink hoodie. And um, that was a crucial part of the Ruby brand ethos. And now, exactly as you say, we sell ball dresses and we sell um, pieces to go to work in. And um, we sell, as well as selling um, sweatshirts and things like that. So I guess the, the thing behind that, as far as the product mix goes, is New Zealand is a small market and for us it was important to cater to the largest possible um, customer group that we can uh, without diluting the message or the, the brand essence. So it's important that we can be with our customers at all aspects of their life um, and by doing that it means that we're not pigeonholed into just one purpose. And the customer that you have, like kind of they come in maybe at that ball dress kind of time or before that, but they stay with you for years through that kind of work, uh, workwear and the like as well. Hey, so it's not just being kind of one tiny segment of the market in time either. Exactly. So the I like to think of Ruby being spirited youth, um, but in the sense that it's of the spirit um, rather than it actually being an age. Um, and so we do have young customers. So we have um, we have uh, uh, customers in their teens, and then we have customers that are, um, all the way up into their eighties. So I, I guess the thing the thing is is for us as far as staying with customers throughout their lives is um, we think a lot about accessibility, and I I really need to temper that with we're obviously not accessible to everyone in the market. So like, just to be clear, but what we try to do is think about who our customer is and then think about what they might be able to buy with one paycheck or one pay packet. So um, a teenager babysitting could come into our store and buy a necklace for $19 um, or a, um, a person working at um, in their first job um, as a graduate um, law uh, person. <laughs> what is a lo- lawyer? <laughs> um, uh, in our high street store, they might be able to buy a top for um, one one nine, and that's something that would be appropriate to wear to work. Um, so, the, so having being with customers, but being a place that 
they can come to and it's not prohibitive um, or that they feel fearful to kind of cross the cross the threshold um, in is is important to us. Yeah, and you mentioned that accessibility because part of accessibility totally is that price and part of the way that you have that good price is that uh, a good part of your offering is made overseas. And I guess we could jump straight into kind of the mindful fashion thing, which is, um, yeah, like... uh, because it's about the kind of mix of the world today, isn't it? And that you, you've been making things as a company overseas with similar factories or the same factories for years. And so you've got like long-term relationships and you know the impact of the choices that you make overseas in a way that maybe not everyone who produces overseas does. But you also as a business still make things here as well, hey? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we make 60% of our clothing collections here and the 40% is made in China. And, and to be clear, when one thing that I think is really important for consumers to understand is when you're making in New Zealand, by and large, your fabric has come from offshore, um, predominantly from China. Uh, So regardless of regardless of where you're actually manufacturing, you are still having to deal with an offshore component. For us making in New Zealand, um, it's it's always been important to me, obviously from a from a personal perspective, sorry, not obviously, nobody here knows me. So from a personal <laughs> perspective, <laughs> it's important to me. Um, I really believe in supporting um, the New Zealand manufacturing industry and from a business perspective, and this is where sustainability or um, crucial kind of um, responsible business decisions really can be bedded in, is it's actually really integral to our business model. So when you're making in New Zealand, you can turn things around quickly and you can do things in smaller runs. So what that means is we can test out like some whack dress basically in a weird color or a strange armhole and if it works, then we can do it again and we can do it again locally and quickly. Um, if, we, if we're if we making that in, in China, so if we do it in New Zealand, maybe we can, depends, I don't want to, Sarah, our production manager might shoot daggers over the internet, but we could, we could turn something around in three or four weeks. Um, it, <laughs> sorry, Sarah. Um, <laughs> I also used to be a production manager, so I do know you, it can happen. It's just hard. Um, but when we're making in China, if you're going to be sea freighting, it's probably more like two to three months. So um, that there, there's the level of um, the sort of the belief or the social belief, and then actually just the um, the business decision, which I think is important. Mm. And tell me about how you came to um, be part of Mindful Fashion and, um, you know, really drive that and, and make that happen. Um, as, as that's somewhere where, with my Ingrid Starnes hat on, uh, I know the work that you've been doing. Yeah, so Mindful Fashion is um, an organisation that we set up with Kate Sylvester. So Kate, Wayne and Sophie from Kate Sylvester. Um, and actually May... This is today is May. We're in May, and we actually launched Mindful Fashion to the industry a year ago, um, and it, we became an incorporated society last July. Mindful Fashion was created because we knew that things need to. I mean, obviously, things need to change in the clothing industry, um, and 
there are some things that are easy to do as an individual or as an individual business, but the really big things require collaboration. And so we were basically having many conversations about things like how do we trace our fabrics? How do we trace our fabrics all the way back to um, to the cotton field? Or how do we ensure that the um, people who are working in a factory that is um, producing recycled polyester, how are we ensuring that they are being treated fairly? Because of the nature of supply chains um, in the clothing industry, they are really opaque. Uh, it's a, it is a challenge. And we knew that we would be more effective at creating positive change if we um, if we work together. So that was that was the initial kind of um, thing behind mindful fashion. And so now we have a board, and we are becoming more and more um, what we need to become, which is so exciting. Uh, I, can I talk a little bit about some of the things we've been doing? Yeah, go, go. Okay, yeah. so so one of the, the, the coolest things that we've done is, so Mindful Fashion is about collaboration and we have 23 members now, so um, designers and fabric agents, and then we have 70 CMTs that, um, so CMT means cut, make and trim. It's basically a garment factory. Um, so we have 70 um mostly Auckland-based CMTs that we uh, are in partnership with. Um, so the first thing is that we got the uh, industry to get together in a room, which, Simon, you will know that's actually not a thing that really happens. So that was the first thing. But actually, as far as some real tangible tangible achievements, um, we've been running local production workshops with um, all of the designers, their production teams, working together to um, basically understand what is important when it comes to um, responsible business practice when you're dealing with your garment makers. So um, I think we've had four uh, workshops where, you know, competitors um, are working together uh, with the focus of um, creating a better local production um, industry. So that's really cool. And, um, and, and part of that is to got... get like a, an appropriate local code of conduct, eh? Because lots totally. of people would have heard about, um, you, you know, these reports that come out that give brands a grade of A, B, C, D or whatever. Yeah. But most of the standards that they give people those grades are actually super relevant if you're H&M making things by the bazillion in Bangladesh, but not super relevant if you're local label uh, with a Ponsonby store making things with a factory with three people in it in um, Henderson. Totally. So what you're talking about is auditing and often the grading principles are based on an audit of your auditing. Um, and that's a really important distinction to make. Um, we, and so with auditing, so auditing, whoa, can of worms auditing. So auditing is basically when you um, – uh, engage an independent contractor to go into, I mean, we all can understand what an audit is, but they go into a factory and they go through a checklist of things like fire escapes and um, uh, they might do interviews with um, machinists and um, 
find out whether or not they are experiencing discrimination based on their gender um, or um, if they have been um, forced to take contraception. That, exactly as you say, works well, potentially works in large factories. Um, absolutely, there needs to be oversight over large factories, so I'm not saying that then I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be oversight, but when you're dealing with Gary, Alcada, um, his wife Shirley, and then um, Carol, the woman that assists them, um, that's that's the company. And so auditing that and yeah, asking those types. I think it's types... a little bit rude if you ask them if they're taking. If So, um, Shirley, yeah. are you being forced to take contraception? <laughs> exactly. It's it's not it's yeah. it's just not how we work and we need to also ensure that there is an external in some way check and balance of our factories in Auckland or in New Zealand so it's not to say that um uh, us as designers should be um able like we should be able to go into factories and understand where there are issues but also we do need to give assurance to um, ourselves and also our customers that um, best practice is being used when it comes to um, how people are being treated and how the environment is being treated so that is actually not a simple um, that's not a simple exercise to implement but what we've done is through mindful fashion we've created a partnership agreement and um, the production teams um, in the designers' um, companies are working with uh, their factories to basically get them to agree to this to the terms of the partnership agreement. Um, the great thing about um, producing locally is, and the reason why we're all working together is because we all actually share factories here. So, um, Simon. I don't know which factories of yours we share with you, but there will be some. And so what it means is that um, for us going into a factory as Ruby, asking for this list of protocols essentially, and then um, the production team at Ingrid Starnes going into the same factory and asking for exactly the same things. Um, it it um, makes our... Um, it makes our requests stronger and clearer um, and uh, much. it seems much more easy to achieve that kind of repetition. One of, one of the things that I found really interesting about mindful fashion and it's made me think about this in myself and in business is when we're dealing with these really big problems, um, there's a tendency for people to go to the biggest and most difficult problem and point to that as a reason why there can't be change. Um, and I see Mindful Fashion's role as being able to find the most effective but easiest way to create change. Um, yeah. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fun that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Yeah, well, it's such it's such a cool thing. And that idea also of like the strength in numbers, because I don't know if everyone um, 
would appreciate how much of the local industry's fabric, as you said, it's, it's you know, super opaque, like God knows what's happening in the background of it, because so much of it is actually dead stock. So, you know, it's the thin end of a 5,000 metre roll, and so a couple of hundred metres is left. The fabric suppliers here buy it overseas at knockdown rates because it's a small um, amount, bring it over here and sell it. And so by the time you say, well, can you give me traceability back to the field, um, it's it's an impossibility, uh, and when you're when you're buying two hundred meters at a time, you don't have that um, you don't have that ability. But as a unit, as a group, that kind of um, banding together means that you, you know because currently the only way to get that traceability if you're a locally made. Um, business is to actually stop being locally made and go and work with an ethical producer in India or something, which might get you the good traceability, but then leaves the local industry completely gutted. Exactly. So we're talking about um, fabric agents that are crucial to the local manufacturing industry, and they are um, they are doing the best that they can to um, shift their business models to make themselves more transparent. Yes, for example, at Ruby, we could go directly to factories and we could cut them out entirely. What that would mean is that already they're like hen's teeth and what that would mean is that um, it would make their businesses more difficult and then smaller companies or people who are just starting out won't have access to fabrics where they could buy maybe 20 meters at a time. Um, So I absolutely understand and, and also we do go directly to factories where we can. And we know that, for example, um, there's a GOTS certified certification for cotton or um, a particular certification for a recycled nylon um, econil. We do go direct, but also I don't want to turn my back on the industry here because it's so important that we make that net stronger rather than weaker. And (laughs) yeah, yeah, and especially because like most of that, it's probably more uh, sustainable in the short term to be using dead stock than to be <laughs> making new things in any of it. You know, there's no, there's no. It's such a complicated thing that coming up with like a sensible uh, model for local um, assurance of good practice is better than trying to follow an international one that's probably built on a scale that is just totally irrelevant. So it's yeah, amazing work you're doing there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 one thing I would say about the a dead stock is that it's it's a that's a thorny that's a thorny one and it's a difficult one and it's one that um is not going to be resolved this year <laughs> because because in that same kind of outlet model for, at retail we can't necessarily know that factories are on purpose overproducing. So just to temper dead stock is important that we're using it because it's made anyway. And also we need to be careful that we're not driving demand for it. Um, But (laughs) it's not a question for today. The question for today is what we can focus on now easily, but also effectively. 
and and kind of coming back to kind of um, Ruby and the situation that all fashion finds itself in at the moment. Um, yeah, like, and, and you, you'd be having lots of conversations with people in fashion. There's lots of businesses that are very affected by COVID-19, you know, tourism and, um, you, you know, some of those kind of international student-based uh, things, you, you know, wildly affected. But fashion would be right up the top of the list, wouldn't it, because of the seasonal nature. And everyone's made a season that no one's going to get margin from. So there must be a heck of a lot of retailers and, and um fashion designers in the same boat that we find ourselves in, which is pretty, pretty cooked. <laughs> it's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just laughed. Yeah, no, it's... no, no. It's that laugh or cry, man. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely in the short term, there is going to be some painful, painful time. Um, we, we're a, a little bit lucky in that we are retail and we do work really close as far as our production timelines to delivery and store. So yes, we have product that um, was dreamt up pre-COVID that we are trying to work out the best way to deal with it because some of it, for example, ball dresses are not appropriate for now. But we were able to very quickly um, repurpose fabric that we'd already booked into basically more appropriate pieces. Um, but I guess I think I think the thing with COVID, absolutely this is going to be a painful time. But with this painful time, what what for me, I kind of s- was looking down the barrel of the next two years and it is going to be challenging. And I basically was like, right, is this something – do I can I do can I do this? Am I going to be able to withstand this? And um, what it kept coming back to was, as long as the company is in line with my values. And so, one of the one of the things about stepping into a um, company that already exists, and I really want to acknowledge the privilege that I have being able to do that. Um, and also acknowledge that I have worked really hard to to get to where I have, but acknowledge the privilege for the for the door to be opened. The thing about stepping into a machine that's already in motion is that you're needing to make decisions that are based on keeping the machine going as well as whether or not it's in line with your values. And so that can be tricky especially as so we have eight stores um that's a large infrastructure and um it's not easy for me to just be like cool we are only going to use one fabric type because that's the one fabric that i know that i've traced all the way to source we can't we can't do that that won't that won't support the infrastructure um so it's always been a balance of um and and a kind of a constant improvement and for me looking down this barrel of the next two years knowing that it's going to be difficult the only way that I was like I am all in on this is if I can radically shift the way that we do some things Um, and so that's what we've started doing we've started throwing these ideas at the wall that we've 
been kind of kicking around for a while and it's like, right now, it's now. Now, it's not perfect, but we're doing it now. <laughs> yeah, never never waste a good crisis, as they yeah, say. that's what dad keeps saying. <laughs> Every email dad's like, sends us a forward, dad sends us a lot of, li- lot of links. Dad also actually loves this podcast. <laughs> I have to let you know. I think yeah. well, um, I think a lot of people will be looking at it and going, there's a, an ability to do things that don't have to be perfect at the moment because people will accept that you're trying things. And so that's a great opportunity to, you know, that's what I mean. And I, I imagine what you do by don't waste a good crisis, not like, oh, well, here's a chance to fire a whole lot of people and start <laughs> yeah. rooting the, you know, totally. <laughs> screwing totally. down everyone. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, John Key saying that quiet part out oh. loud. Oh, yeah, what? Like, really, it's a chance to, like, let's try some new things in the business model and be honest. (laughs) That's it. That's, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, Yeah, so for, I'll talk a little bit about some of the things we've been trying. So first thing is um, I just got really into making stuff when when I first went into lockdown. Um, So a lot of the time in my job, I don't get to play around with fabric with my hands and sit at the sewing machine. And um, when I was in lockdown, I basically was unable to think. And so I started hand sewing and because I don't have a sewing machine at home at the moment. And I was like, okay, we need to start selling. We need to start selling our patterns for our customers. Like we need to give them the same opportunity to make things and so we released a selection of our patterns and um it was like the response that we had I was I was totally blown away and um it's so exciting to me because it means that um there's a potential for me to keep designing and keep dreaming up like new ways of like do I put the dart into the armhole and then if I like pivot that around and then you know like these like weird when you described pattern making in your intro Simon that was like perfect that was the perfect way to describe it so I can play around with pattern making and I can play around with design and I'm not necessarily then making a whole lot of new products I can sell the idea and that is like so oh, and, cool. And also that people just, if you're not growing up knowing how to sew, so I'm watching Ingrid teach our kids how to sew and it's cool. wild, you know, it's so yeah. cool. And it is, it's really, really hard. Like, yeah, three-dimensional maths. It's yeah. ridiculous. Um, plus a whole lot of dexterity and stuff. And when you realise how many physical touches and how much care and how much working back and forwards goes into making a garment, then you value it and you pay for it. Where I think most people, it's kind of like the same thing with meat, when everyone just thinks, meat turns up on the supermarket on polystyrene trays so you know it's not it's you know they're so disconnected from the reality of like the world and it's the same with clothes you're like oh well that costs 15 bucks at top shop it should only ever cost 15 bucks and if you try and make it you're like well that's a whole weekend ruined yeah i mean absolutely the by our customers cutting out fabric and stitching things together they are being they are being taught um how valuable the person that usually makes their clothes actually is in a really visceral way that words on a page or me just like blah, blah, blahing never will. Um, I think just on on that value, on the valuing of um, machinists and the valuing of um, clothing, um, without wanting to, 
you know, shirk responsibility. I really do think that the um, the issues that we have in the clothing industry mirror the issues that we have in society. You know, let's just get big, you know, let's just go big here just for a little minute. And so things like um, knowing knowing the implications of your consumption. So I remember reading this RNZ article and um, it was about, it was like a slow news time. It was like over over um, Christmas and it was about where our rubbish goes, like the actual names of the recycling centers. Um, and I was like so blown away by it because it's not like that, that part of my consumption is not in my face. Um, and it's the same thing, valuing, for example, um, essential workers, supermarket, people who work at the supermarket. It's at the moment there's a conversation about them not being valued enough and it's I see that I see that in clothing and I think I think that if we if we can understand where there are those parallels I think that it starts to help explain where some of the issues are in the clothing industry and then it helps us think about how we can answer them yeah, and, and just a systemic um, sexism in it as well, in that machinists are overwhelmingly women and paid shit, and uh, tailors are these men who are in these exalted positions, and you know, it's there's there's all of these kind of, and that that's all that's happened, and you know, traditional when there's been um, the prior kind of um, gender split and things like medicine or teaching, and all of these places where you know, if if there are more women doing it by a good percentage, they're getting paid less and it's just wild yeah I mean our workforce is almost entirely female and yes that is it is what it is and also there is the um there is there is racism in that also so if we're thinking about local manufacture um a lot of the time um the industry here relies on immigration and so um same thing we it's it's kind of what i mean it's what's happening in society it's the clothing industry is just part of society but (laughs) that doesn't mean that it's not the job of me and everyone else in the clothing industry to change things yeah and and i think the point you made that you know there are places you start and places you 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 kind of get to is important because we we are all uh, on a journey, as they say. And what we try to say is that, you know, we're doing the best with the things that we can control and trying to control more of the things. <laughs> uh, but yeah. we don't control that many of them at the moment. Uh, and yeah. that's that's kind of like what, what but like trying to know your impact is the first step. Because otherwise the only way to do it is to, you, you know, move everything offshore immediately, which is um, a nonsense in its own way as well. Um, as a, as a, um, a, a, a kind of final thought, like, what, what advice would you um, have for people, a couple of things that we like to ask everyone, what advice would you have for people who are interested in, um, you know, trying to make something that's that's a creative passion but also a business work? Okay, so in the clothing industry, what I would say is that you will work really hard you may or may not be financially viable um, and you will be doing it because you're compelled to do it. My advice will be you are able to understand your numbers 
So um, at at Ruby, we have an academy. It used to be just for internal, but now it's an external thing that we've opened up to the public. But part of the academy is financial literacy. I take all of our staff through our accounts every three, so every quarter um, we go through the P&L and um, everyone can understand that those P&Ls, sometimes it just takes different ways of explaining it, but they can understand. And that is so valuable because in the end, it does come down to, do you have enough money to buy your next season's worth of fabric? Yes or no. Um, do you have enough money to pay your machinists and your staff and yourself? Yes or no. And you need to understand your numbers. So absolutely. Um, so I'm still giving advice right now. Um, absolutely. You um should be employing or um, using the services of someone who is an accountant or has skills in that area. But you 100% need to deeply understand the numbers yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's the best advice anyone could ever get. Listen to it if you're listening. Listen to it. The earlier you know those numbers, the better your life's going to be. Uh, and and um and I'm just being yelled at to get out the door. But what um and what would be your version of um of of success as a final thought, Emily? For me personally, it would be still being able to noodle around with fabric. Um. And for the wider industry, it would be having this mindful fashion be an organization which is constantly and fluidly pushing for better. It's a beautiful thing. Well, you've made such a magic start and thank you so much for sharing your story and everyone jump on and have a look at Ruby and the way that you're telling those stories about sewing and opening up those patterns. It's so cool. And um, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate it. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you very much, Tina Tiller, for producing. Uh, and thank you very much all for having us along in your ears and hope this finds you well. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin Off Podcast Network.